It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, hey, everybody. CJ here, Anarchy's smooth operator and your friendly neighborhood investigator of hazardous history. Welcome to episode 112 of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I'm very pleased to share a conversation I recently had with Scott Horton of Anti-War Radio and The Scott Horton Show. But before we get into that, I've got to do a Patreon thank you shout out and one more quick announcement. And I have one awesome individual to thank who has signed up as a Patreon supporter of the show since the last episode I made, which was just a few days ago, actually. So thanks very much to Nick for stepping up to help out the Dangerous History Podcast via patreon.com slash prof cj. And just as a reminder to everybody, please consider if you're not already becoming a Patreon supporter of this show. And if you sign up for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show I make, and you'll also have access to special bonus episodes that I put out periodically, usually try for every one to two months put out a bonus episode that's only available to my Patreon supporters at a dollar or more per episode. One more quick announcement. I've created an Amazon.com wish list of stuff that will help me out with running and building and improving the DHP in case any of you are inclined to want to buy me anything to help out the show. If you're in some sort of awful, awful dilemma, heaven forbid, like you've got some Amazon credit burning a hole in your virtual digital pocket and you just don't know what to do with it, you already have everything you want in the world or whatever... Well, you, I can solve your problem. I can absorb that Amazon credit for you. I'm just that kind of guy. Anyway, items range in cost from just a few bucks, especially if you get a used copy of one of the books I have on there for me, up to several hundred dollars. The list is mostly books, but it also includes some electronic things and audio equipment and so on that will help me out with the show and continuing to make it better all the time. So I'd greatly appreciate it if you ever want to buy me a gift or, like I said, ever need to make some room in your imaginary Amazon.com credit wallet. I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd send me anything from that list, order me anything off that list. And if you do so, once I receive it, I will thank you by name for the specific item in the next show that I produce after I receive it. So I'll put a link to that list in the show notes for this episode and also on the show's donate page. So for this and for all the other ways to help support the Dangerous History podcast, please go to profcj.org slash donate. That's profcj.org slash donate. Okay, on with the show. Many of you probably already know who Scott is, but for those of you who do not, Scott Horton is host of Anti-War Radio on Pacifica 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles, KUCR 88.3 in Riverside, and KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, and The Scott Horton Show, which can be found at scotthorton.org. In 2007, Horton won the Austin Chronicles Best of Austin Award, Best Iraq War Insight and Play-by-Play, 
for anti-war radio. He's conducted more than 4,000 interviews since 2003. Scott is also the opinion editor at antiwar.com. His articles have appeared there and at lewrockwell.com, the History News Network, the Future of Freedom, and the Christian Science Monitor. Scott is also the narrator of the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism. So here for your listening enjoyment, I present my recent conversation with Scott Horton. Scott Horton, thanks for coming on the Dangerous History Podcast today. Thanks very much for having me, CJ. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk to you because I've been a longtime listener of yours going all the way back to like the days of when your show was still anti-war radio. And you're basically a human encyclopedia of recent U.S. foreign policy, most of which, of course, as we know, is a train wreck. And not only that, but on your show, you talk to super smart experts in specific areas all the time. So long story short, I thought you and I could have a conversation kind of looking at like the big picture of world events and specifically Team America's role in them kind of in the last few decades. Um, but before, sure. fun. before we launch into that, though, I just wanted to ask you, I've heard you mention a few times that you're working on a book right now. I am. Uh... Can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, it's... Um... It's meant to be a complete and total refutation of the entire terror war from 79 through today, basically. Um, Sounds like a big book. My co-author is the great Tom Woods. So, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so I'm bringing all the facts, and then he's going to basically rewrite everything I write so that you guys will like it, mm-hmm. so that it sounds like you know his very professional, uh, talented writer, Harvard-educated voice instead of my cranky 40-year-old teenager voice. Right, um, right. Well, Tom Woods is an awesome writer. He, yeah, he really is. Yeah, he knows how to turn. Oh, a let's phrase. put it this way: Ron Paul's best book is by Tom. So um, <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So no, I'm very lucky to have a deal with him to do that, and I've gotten the introduction and chapter one done, and I can't finish chapter two. It's literally my chapter two is Afghanistan, and it's twenty thousand words already, which I think is what eighty pages or something. So wow. there's, there's no way that's what I can turn in. But I just can't, I can't uh, quit writing on it. So that's my worst problem here. But I'm going to make it Tom's problem. He's the one who's got to pare it down and make it readable. Hmm, yeah. Well, I mean, writing a book is a huge, huge task. I've started a few, but never got past, you know, a couple chapters or, you know, 40, 50 pages. So I, I respect anyone who's able to pull it off because so far I've not been able to do it. I mean, you know, my real problem, like I said, I'm at 20,000 words on this Afghanistan chapter, and I'm still not done writing about the surge and the aftermath of the surge at all. I mean, I probably have another 10,000 words to write, wow. and then I have a ton more research to go back and do, a ton more interviews to go back and listen to for certain things. So, I mean, I really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, if some people are saying to me, well, I guess you just have to write a series of books, but no one's going to read that. Mm-hmm. So... I'm really in a rock and a hard place here trying to tell you everything that you need to know 
in 300 pages. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's it's a bit different, but have you had a chance to read Andrew Basevich's uh, latest book yet? No. In fact, I'm terrified of it. As soon as I opened it, it says, our story begins on July 3rd, 1979, and I wanted to throw it through the window or something, you know, because it's <laughs> my book is what it is, only it's written by a guy who is a former Army colonel who is a real scholar and a you know former professor and a brilliant writer and has this is his sixth or seventh book um and he knows i mean he's me only a professional about every bit of this stuff and so i thought if i read his book now it's going to completely ruin mine or i'm just not even going to write mine at all so what i'm going to do is i'm going to write mine and then i'm going to read his and update my book where I have to to make it as accurate as his is, but without plagiarizing it too much, you know. But if I read it now, I would end up just rewriting it, probably, because he's basically covered the exact same story that I want to cover. But if if I have an advantage, if I can call it that at all, it's, I guess, that I'm not a colonel. I'm, I'm not willing to compromise about any of this. I have a completely hell no attitude. Well, he does too, though, really. I don't know. I'm actually I'm 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 really worried about Basevich's book. It's the biggest problem out there. In fact, <laughs> if people would go out there and read it now, they probably don't even need to bother with mine when it comes out in a year. Well, I, I think your take will be a bit different um, because I I did pretty recently read that book. It's I think America's War for the Greater Middle East or something like that, and it's it's really good, and it's the definitive one now. When like students in my classes come up to me and they're like. Is there any one book I can read about like kind of how Team America got so involved in the Middle East? And that's that's now my standard one, like read this book. But it's and and this isn't a fault of it, it just is what it is. It's a it's a book that's more looking at like the details of the actual military operations and the kind of you know, military personnel. And and I have a feeling that while your book probably will you know, have to mention some of the same stuff that you'll be looking at kind of other aspects of it too. Maybe not as much focused on like the operational details as, as a uh, Basevich's book. Okay. Good deal. Yeah. And I guess I had sort of forgotten that part of it. That that's, that is the subtitle, a military history. So he is looking at it more as Bob Gates would say through a soda straw rather than real big picture thing. And yeah. I read one criticism of it that he doesn't, offer an alternative policy but boy do i got one for the final step <laughs> right yeah I, I think um i can't quite remember but i think his alternatives are more like hey how about we like have a rational discussion and examination of the policies we've been following and their their premises and whatever and he didn't necessarily say like what's the correct conclusion as much as hey how about we start by actually talking about some of these issues and some of these premises. Yeah, and being honest about what it is we're even doing here. Right, right. And which... that's why I really love the the premise of the book, the title of the book. In fact, as soon as it came out, I interviewed him and I said, thank you, because you just really helped me out. In my introduction, I can immediately just cite him as, you know, not just from authority, but as I explain that it's really not a war on terrorism at all. It's a war for the greater Middle East that has been going on long before the war on terrorism. Terrorism is just a partial reaction, one of the reactions and consequences of the war for the greater Middle East that has become the excuse for it. And what a great way to make that case in having Andrew Basevich and saying, look, man, here's a guy who, 
you know, if you need an argument from authority, he pretty much is the authority on this. And and the way that he, you know, constructs that um, angle for it, instead of the war on terror being the overarching kind of doctrine and little proxy wars within that, but making it America's war for imperial domination of some other part of the planet where we aren't um, is... Uh, you know, a whole different frame and I think a much more accurate one, you know, I mean, it is just a, it's a medical metaphysical kind of a creation of his there, you know, the way he he's phrasing it. But I think it's a, a much better way to understand the situation than, Oh, we're defending ourselves from a bunch of jihadists. Yeah. Yeah. It's the whole kind of self perpetuating cycle, self licking ice, ice cream cone thing of each intervention leads to the blowback that then, necessitates and justifies the next interventions yeah absolutely in fact even uh the the uh young men that uh the isis terrorists who slit the priest's throat in france the other day one of the nuns it's quoted in the daily mail one of the nuns said he said you christians are killing us and so now it's you which is no justification whatsoever don't anyone read me wrong there but the point is i can't find a single terrorist attack where they don't say that this, what I'm doing is in some way a defense from what you've been doing to us. They always say that. Always, always. It's never about how dare your daughter not cover her head when, you know, and go vote in primary elections and go to college and mini skirts and whatever. It's just, that's not it. That's never been it. It's always, um, you know, from the First World Trade Center all the way through. It's you attack us, as bin Laden put it. How come our uh, your blood is blood, but our blood is water? Well, we'll show you. Simple as that. Shrug. I'm, you know, again, no rationalization, but just explain. This is the real world we're living in, not one where, oh my God, the more you believe in Islam, the more you want to do a suicide attack against someone for being good and innocent and pure and saved. So let's uh, kind of jump back in time a little bit and look at how it came to this, kind of how we got to this point where we are where we are. So getting all the way back to like the Cold War, I think that you and I would probably agree that the Cold War danger of the USSR was exaggerated for kind of the benefit of the American power elite and military industrial complex. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, it certainly seems that way to me. I mean, um, I mean, this is you know, important to say, hey, Stalin was Stalin. Right, right. Um, and, you know, there's no reason to think necessarily that, oh, under no circumstances could he ever have posed a threat to Western Europe. But at the same time, you know, compared to the actual narrative of the time, that he didn't just pose a threat to Western Europe, but it was a plot to dominate the entire planet and all of this stuff, you know, it's obviously completely harebrained. And I think if you look at the way they talk about Vladimir Putin in Russia right now, or, in fact, I felt this way in 2002 and three. the way they talked about Saddam Hussein. I thought, this is really how they launched the Cold War back in the 40s, was the same level of scare the hell out of them, Harry. Go out there and tell them what you have to so that their emotions will take over and their minds will stop, you know, as Bill Hicks would say. Yeah, there's that one uh, case. That's how they do that, it. There's that one case that came out eventually. I think it was General Lucius Clay where – Eventually, he kind of admitted that he lied to Congress about how imminent the Soviet threat was in order to get like some new bomber program funded or something like that. Now that we have all this hindsight, 
and again, you know, hopefully that means we we can um, not be so emotionally invested in the topic and just look at it. Well, let's see. The whole world was burnt to the ground except North America, <laughs> you know, basically in terms of like industrial capacity, not South America either. But then again, there wasn't much going on there. America inherited the whole world. We inherited all of the empires of the European powers plus the Japanese. We got everything less the USSR and China, basically. And they lost 27 million people in that war. They were completely devastated, and their dictator had abolished prices, <laughs> you know, in order to make things fair. So, in other words, their economy was a c complete and total wreck. They could, the only way they could industrialize in the way that they did under his five-year plans was by sacrificing innocent human lives by the millions in order to get the job done. And, you know, the idea that somehow they were a threat to the middle part of North America is just ridiculous. And, and we all really saw this when they fell apart. You know, part of the story that most people don't know, or maybe they've heard of this uh, once or twice or something, but I think it's really relevatory that the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, nay, the director of central intelligence at the time, meaning the head of the CIA and the head of all the other intelligence agencies as well, was Robert Gates, uh, George W. Bush's second secretary of defense, Obama's first one. And uh, Robert Gates and his CIA and intelligence services completely missed the fact that the Soviet Union was falling apart. They missed the fall of the wall all the way through the actual disillusion of the last uh, parts of the Soviet Union when Belarus and Ukraine broke away and the Soviet flag literally came down on Christmas Day 1991 and was replaced by the Russian red, white, and blue. And the reason that they blew it was because they had spent the last 12 years pretending that the Soviet monster was 12 feet tall, that they had all this secret new technology, that the reason that, that we can't find it is because of how advanced and secret it all is. And... They had basically just been, like any, I guess, public choice theorist would tell you, they had been pursuing their own ends as CIA men, as intelligence men, as military men. And in doing so, they were propping up the Soviet Union of their imagination so big that they had no idea that, in fact, the entire project was coming to an end before their very eyes. They were the last ones to know. You know, you and me, you know, watching it with our dads on uh, NBC News at night as as people climbed over the wall without getting shot for the first time in 25 years. You know, we found out the same time Robert Gates did. And was that was why, because they were just pursuing their own ends and not any national interest, not the truth, not defense of the American people from aggression, their own ends as spies and as soldiers. Now, that makes me uh, think of the notorious Team B from the mid-70s. Yeah, and that was what really kicked it off. Yeah, I know a lot of the neocons were involved with that. Do you know, was was Gates himself actually involved with Team B in any way, to your knowledge? Now I'd have to go back and look at that. You know, yeah, you I'm need not to sure interview either. Ray McGovern, because he was there. Mm -hmm. He knows Robert Gates and has all of his own personal contempt for Robert Gates. And he <laughs> loves telling this story. Uh, so, you know, if you need to, I'll get you raised contact info. You can interview him about it um, oh, okay. specifically, but yeah, I mean, that was George HW Bush when he was the head of the CIA, the regular CIA analysts were saying, look, man, this is what we got. And that wasn't good enough for, well, 
guess who? Podhoritz and the neocons, right? You know, there must be something more there. Let's build up a case. So they lobbied to create this separate group, Team B, to go in and do their own estimates of Soviet power. And then that officially became, or I don't know exactly the official who stamped what, but it certainly, I think it's fair to say overall, this was became the view of CIA leadership under William Casey and his deputy, Robert Gates. And then when Casey died and Gates took over, this was basically the same pile of BS that they were pursuing. You know, we're certain that they've made all these new nuclear submarines, but we can't find them anywhere. We can't hear them. Well, that must be proof of just how quiet they are. And, you know, who knows? If we can't find any of them, that might mean that they have twice as much as we estimated when they, they didn't exist. Yeah, they've got invisible stealth submarines. That's how. I think what's different, though, at least in my eyes, between the Cold War and the, the War for the Greater Middle East, or whatever you want to call it, is as as flawed as some of the perceptions might have been about, like, you know, real Soviet capabilities and, and how imminent uh, an attack by them really was and whatever, at least the Cold War, as as messed up as it was and as off the rails it went – uh, from time to time, there at least was like a coherent strategy against which all this was being laid. Now, it may have been a flawed strategy, and, um, you know, especially in the case of like the domino theory and whatever, but there was a basic strategy of containment that at least whether you agreed with it or not as as being the best course and as being necessary and as being, you know, whether or not it's being applied properly in each specific case, at least there was a strategy that you could point to that, like, was coherent within itself, you know, that that actually made some logical sense if you accepted, you know, how much of a threat the Soviets were, etc. Um, it, it seems like where where we're at now, there's not even really a coherent strategy of any sort. And that's, that's one of the things that, that Basevich, um hit on a lot in his book is just the, the lack of there really being any kind of an understandable, um, coherent within itself sort of a policy or, or strategy. Yeah. Well, and again, it's because it's based on a lie. So like, let's pretend for a minute that, you know, Ted Cruz and the Senate and Obama, Hillary, you know, any of these, uh, Michelle Flournoy or any of these executive branch, uh, you know, National Security Council types, even mean well. Okay, let's seriously, let's pretend that they do and that they're really trying. They got way too many different conflicting interests at play. And they're basically starting from a massive false premise. No one in D.C. can admit that this is all Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama's fault. They're the ones who did this. Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan backed the Mujahideen. George H.W. Bush stabbed them in the back by occupying Saudi in order to bomb Iraq. And then he stayed. And then Bill Clinton stayed and starved a million people to death. Americans didn't notice. We were watching Seinfeld and thought of the Clinton 90s as peacetime. But it wasn't peacetime. It was genocide. And that's what caused the September 11th attack. Genocide from bases in Saudi Arabia. A blockade that starved a million people to death. And that was why al-Qaeda attacked us. So then we pretend, oh, no, history began on September 11th. Even if collateral damage creates more terrorists, what are we going to do? 
not defend ourselves from this evil Islamist juggernaut that keeps trying to kill us. And so on we go. And even when they admit it's counterproductive, they go, yeah, but what are we going to do? We're defending ourselves. They started it. Not true. USA started it. Our politicians started it. Our government started it. Doesn't mean, you know, if we're the empire, that doesn't make Al-Qaeda, Han, and Leia, right? Doesn't mean that they're good. They could be the battle droids and the evil separatists, but they're still in opposition to an evil empire. Uh, and, and chronology counts. <laughs> so as long as they're starting from the premise that, hey, geez, these guys attacked us just because of their nihilism, and all we can do is fight a war, uh, 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 some kind of rear guard defensive war against them forever, then they're going to keep on like that. Um, and then, again, that's pretending that they're being honest, right? That's, that's pretending they're being honest and saying, well, they just have a false premise. They can only get it wrong now. Um, but look at what they're really doing. I mean, the reason, again, we were attacked in the first place is because our government was too close to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Not because they're our enemies, because they're too close of friends, that they let us keep our bases there on the Holy Arabian Peninsula. So now, who's been fighting us? Sunni, hardcore, right-wing, reactionary, you know, radical, basically Saudi types, bin Ladenites, right? But now, so what does that mean in practice when there's a sectarian war in the region? which George Bush started by invading Iraq and taking the side of the Shiite supermajority uh, quite con- list- because he listened to Paul Wolfowitz and quite contrary to what the uh, Saudis wanted and, and what the Saudis' interests were there. And then, in- and then ever since then, um, well, so we fought a war on the side of the Shiites for four or five years, and then they pivoted again. It's called the redirection, if you read Seymour Hersh's piece in The New Yorker about it, where they basically said, oops, we just got rid of Saddam for the Ayatollahs in Iran and for the Ayatollahs in Najaf. And we just empowered the Iraqi Shiite Arab super majority, which only helped the Iranians, who we still hate for no real reason. So now we better fix that by aligning with not just the Saudis, but with the terrorists. And Seymour Hersh has it in 2007, right? Uh, it's about a policy that started in 2006 or so. Um, George uh, W. Bush backing Mujahideen in Lebanon, in Syria, the Muslim Brotherhood, the, the same guys, I'm pretty sure, the same guys we now call Arar al-Sham in Syria. Um, Kurdish terrorists called PJAK, um, who are PKK types that fight in Iran, as well as Jandala, who are bin Ladenite Sunni jihadists that are based in Baluchistan, the region that's bisected by Iran and Pakistan there. And um, that was the Sunni turn. And we've been fighting then for our enemies ever since then. And when the, uh, the worst members of, uh, of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, Zarqawi's men from Iraq War II, when they went home to Libya and to Syria, Obama and Hillary took their side. Because, and right at the same time they're killing bin Laden, they have this political decision that says the slogan is bin Laden's dead, the terror war's over, we defeated al-Qaeda, they're gone. And then right at the exact time they're saying that, they overthrow Gaddafi's, you know, clean-shaven chin <laughs> in favor of Ansar al-Sharia, the Libyan Islamic fighting group, and the Libyan veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then even in the New York Times... They quote Hillary Clinton calling it her bank shot, 
Now let's take all the jihadists and guns and send them on to Syria to overthrow Assad. And this is the policy that has led to the rise of the Islamic State. And I know that, okay, if I was a right winger at all, then this would sound like crazy birther conspiracy stuff. Like I'm saying Obama is pro-terrorist and he's doing this because he loves Islam and hates America and he's a traitor for the Islamo-fascist caliphate or whatever. But I'm not saying that. I'm a libertarian, and I don't think he's a Muslim, and I don't think he's a secret Kenyan or any of this stuff. Uh, what he is is he's Ronald Reagan. He's back in the Mujahideen in cooperation with the Saudis, just like Ronald Reagan did. And he's doing it in pursuit of what he considers to be American interests, just like Ronald Reagan did. So forget all those silly birther stuff, but look hard at the facts. Barack Obama is guilty of the highest treason. There's no other way to put it. When Ronald Reagan backed these guys, they hadn't knocked down our towers and killed 3,000 Americans yet. When Ronald Reagan backed these guys, they hadn't killed probably, you know, 3,000 of the 4,500 guys that died fighting in Iraq War II. But when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama took their side in Libya and Syria, they took the side of the butchers of New York City. And they took their side for a good two years before it culminated in ISIS breaking off from al-Nusra Front and then creating the Islamic State in 2014. And this is treason. It is aid and comfort to the enemy. Again, not because their loyalty is to the enemy, but because, eh, what's a little treason in pursuit of American goals? And now... Back to the incoherence. Why in the hell is it American goals to do things that would empower Al-Qaeda? I thought they were the enemy. If they're the enemy, then why aren't we fighting them? Why isn't that the priority? George W. Bush paid Muammar Gaddafi and Bashar al-Assad to torture and murder Mujahideen for us. Right? Just a few years ago. <laughs> George W. Bush completely screwed up and scored a huge own goal by invading Iraq in 2003 and empowering the Shia. He began the turn toward the Sunni jihadists that Barack Obama inherited and continued. And they've done this policy because that's what Saudi wants, that's what Turkey wants, that's what Israel wants, to limit the power and influence of the newly uh, uh, much more empowered Shiite crescent, uh, the, basically the Iranian alliance with Syria's Assad Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, and now, since 2003, Baghdad and the Dawa Party Shiite government there. And so that's why they've done it. And, and you can read them in their own words. You know, when uh, Barack Obama was interviewed by the Atlantic magazine, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, in 2012, the headline is, As President, I Don't Bluff. They give a little bit of lip service to the humanitarian this and that, but they make it real clear. Jeffrey Goldberg says, and hey, wouldn't getting rid of Assad be a great way to take Iran down a peg since Assad is Iran's last enemy in the region? And Obama says, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we're doing. As he's negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran, which is the biggest albeit fake, but the biggest outstanding issue between us and Iran, as Obama's ameliorating that and taking away the, the worst reason to have conflict with Iran, he's placating our allies 
by weakening Iran in Syria. We can't reinvade Iraq and put the Sunnis back in charge of the capital city. That's too much. But as a consolation, we can try to take out Assad. And so in order to maintain this dominance, we've got to please our allies. And since our allies' interests are the exact opposite of ours, those are the interests our government pursues. And you know what? Let me say one more thing about this before I stop, which is for your audience, just Google the words Oren, O-R-E-N, and Sunnis. And that is Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. And you'll find the YouTube right there. And there he is explaining to Jeffrey Goldberg, again from the Atlantic. And Goldberg doesn't go along with everything that Oren says, by the way, here. He shakes his head. But Oren goes ahead and says, this, the, from Israel's point of view, we prefer the Sunni evil. And then he explicitly, he doesn't say nothing about any mythical moderates in Syria. He explicitly refers to ISIS, chopping heads, massacring thousands of Iraqi Shia captives in the field. This is, in fact, this, this statement that he gives. It's at the Aspen Fancy Pants Conference in uh, the very end of June, or maybe it's in July of Oh, it is. It's July of 2014. So it's within two, three weeks of the declaration of the caliphate by Omar Bakr al-Baghdadi, the so-called Caliph Ibrahim in Mosul. It's just weeks after the declaration of the caliphate. And he explicitly refers to them chopping heads and massacring captives, explicit references to ISIS. And he says, yeah, but Hezbollah and Assad are backed by Iran. And then he lies, of course, and he says, and Iran has military nuclear technology. And Assad is responsible for every death on all sides of the civil war, even though half of them are his soldiers. And so that's why it makes perfect sense from the Sunni, from the Israeli point of view, that we prefer the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in Syria to Assad, Hezbollah, and Iran. And all you have to do is type in Oren Sunnis, and you look at that, and that is the answer to your question, why is the American government on the side of its enemies in Syria? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. And when you look back, I mean, if if you would have told somebody in like 1990 where we'd be at today as far as being up to our neck and, and all this stuff, they would have thought you were crazy. I mean, if you go back to... You know, right around the time of the end of, end of the Cold War, you've got Team America, at least in terms of its own PR, having, quote unquote, won the Cold War, or maybe in our view that the Soviets just lost it first. But you would think that, uh, you know, if if all the nonsense were told about, you know, the the mythology of, of America and whatever was true, you would think that with the Cold War being over, we would, as, as a few people were urging at the time, we would go back to being a normal country in a normal time, and we'd take some serious, you know, slashing to defense spending. We'd close down a lot of those overseas bases, maybe disband NATO, and and for damn sure stop being the world policeman. And you know, after after all, we we were told for like fifty years almost that all of that stuff that happened after World War II was brought on as a specific response to the specific threat of the USSR. But that, you know, disbanding Team America World Police obviously is not what happened. So I'm interested to hear your take. What 
what are the things, because I'm sure it's not just, I'm sure there's no one thing, but what are some of the things that you think caused Team America, by which I mean, you know, the people running the American state, and particularly those who are, you know, pro-interventionist, what do you think caused Team America to stay on the world police path even after the fall of the Soviet Union? I mean, was it just public choice economics? Was it mission creep? Were people in the American elite, were they really drinking their own Kool-Aid and believing their own nonsense about the end of history and all that kind of stuff? What's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. All of the above there. I mean, you have, I mean, I even remember there was a time, as you said, normal country, normal time. That was what Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, an official neoconservative even had said uh, for a minute there. And I remember there was talk you know, Brokaw and Jennings and with a straight face on TV that, well, maybe now we'll abolish the CIA. <laughs> who needs them now? Wow. And they were really talking about that, ladies and gentlemen. You might not remember, but that, that was a real subject of discussion. And, of course, they needed work to do. Hell no, you're not going to abolish our agency. Uh, and, and at the Pentagon, the same thing. Uh, even George H.W. Bush made huge cuts in the military when the Soviet Union fell apart. I mean, it was basically impossible not to i mean they had overbuilt the bomber force for one example by orders of magnitude beyond what could possibly be, uh, be needed even in the event of a nuclear war so they had made all these massive cuts and there was talk about maybe putting these guys more or less out of business and and you know what the future would hold and especially with the year 2000 approaching and all this it was kind of up in the air about which way are we going to go here well the people who were who it's sort of just like right after September 11, the people who already had the uh, an organization and a ready made answer for here's what's going on here and here's what we have to do about it, they're the ones who won out. Everyone's everyone else's opposition was too diffused. Uh, you know, maybe if there had been a real strong military man, a retired general who demanded that the Pentagon be dismantled or something like that, it could have been done. But instead, everyone was just kind of standing around with their hands in their pockets waiting to see what would happen. And the guys at the Pentagon, led by the neoconservative intellectuals, said, hey, now's our chance. You know, if if uh, the Soviet Union is gone, that means we've gone from a bipolar world to a unipolar world. Um, Forget having no poles. Right. We are the center of the universe now. And so that was, um, you know, as uh, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, Scooter Libby, and Zalmay, Zalmay Khalilzad, um, uh, high-level you know, bureaucrat-type members of the neoconservative movement, they all worked for Dick Cheney after the first Gulf War in the Pentagon and when he was the Secretary of Defense. And they wrote up the defense planning guidance of 1992 that said, basically, we will never allow there to be a near-peer competitor to American military power on Earth ever again. Uh, we, we have our unipolar moment, and we're going to take it. What that basically means is we're going to build up our empire to be so powerful that it'll last forever because even Europe, Russia, and China combined wouldn't even be able to think about challenging our military strength before we bomb the crap out of them. No, no combination of powers on Earth. Will, we will be so far ahead of any possible you know, future adversary that they won't even try it. They'll just only look to figure out ways to get along under our system. And, you know, of course that's nonsense. It's the whole thing about, you know, battle plans last until the first minutes of the fight or, you know, like Mike Tyson says, until you get punched in the mouth or whatever. And then all of a sudden you realize your opponents have a say in these things too. 
Um, and it's all very self-defeating. And, of course, you know, we're talking about a bunch of neocons who don't know the first thing about economics, right? Even Dick <laughs> Cheney says deficits don't matter and this kind of thing. So the idea to them that a world empire might as well be a conspiracy against us because it's the most efficient way to actually destroy uh, a system as powerful as America's is to overextend it. Um, to them, this is all just magic. It'll all last forever. It's the same thinking that you remember well from 2002. That Well, after we invade Iraq, then what doesn't matter? Because we have the army. What, are you challenging the army's ability to make people do what they want? I didn't think so. Even though direct military force, which is what the army can do, you know, in some circumstances can have very little to do with the politics on the ground of who's who and who's doing what. Like, for example, in the Iraq war, were the Shiites going to not take the chance to take the capital city no matter what the Americans decided? Come on. You know, so same thing for the world empire. You know, they go out to be all they can be. And it's at the expense of the rest of us. And you know what? Honestly, anyone in their same position, even if they were doing if, even if they were, you know, uh, implementing a policy that would be much more to our liking or or just as bad, but in different ways. All of these people are full of self-justifications and rationalizations. And there, there is very base corruption. And some of them are really evil men like Richard Pearl and people like that. But for the most part, they're all a bunch of, you know, Hillary Clinton's up there patting themselves on the back for how smart they are. And even if stuff doesn't work out, at least they tried and... This is the system. This is the power we have. What are we supposed to do? Not use it? As Madeleine Albright said, what's the point of having this military if we're not going to use it? As Hillary Clinton herself said about the Bosnia War, never even mind the Kosovo War, which she pushed Bill into in 1999, about the Bosnia War. She said, what are we doing if we're not using the military to protect our values, you know, in land that was far beyond the old uh, Cold War line at the Elbe River halfway across Germany. And you, so you got neocons and you got, you know, responsibility to protect liberal humanitarian interventionists. And you got, you know, anybody who wants to feel like they're part of the team gets to cheer for the team. This is, as the Wall Street or uh, uh, the um, Weekly Standard puts it, this is national greatness, conservatism. Give us a real big project to do. If not revamp the whole highway system, I know. How about a war? Yeah, I always wonder with, with the neocons, you know, you can never really 100% know for sure until we have like a mind-reading machine what the hell these characters really believe or not. Because after all, they're the people who one of the centerpieces of their whole thing is the the idea of the noble lie, the idea that, oh, you need to just have, you know, some kind of bullshit story that everybody can believe because that'll make society, you know, cohere together better and all that. And so I always just wonder, like, with specific individuals within the, the neocon milieu, how many of them are really believing all the American exceptionalism and all this sort of nonsense? And how many of them kind of deep down know it's B.S.? But, you know, they're doing their, their noble lie thing because that's what they learned from Leo Strauss or whoever. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, it depends on, on which ones we're talking about, for example. It's been said enough times that I guess it's plausible that Paul Wolfowitz really believed all of his Democratic stuff. 
I mean, hey, who prefers military dictatorships to self-rule, even if we're talking about a country where you've never even heard of it before? But do you prefer that they have regular elections or one strong man tells them what to do every day until they die? We all prefer some form of self-government for the future of humanity, whatever. It's easy to to believe in that, I guess. You know, Robert Kagan seems to believe in that when when there was a revolution, uh, a legitimate, not a color-coded scam, but a legitimate revolution in Egypt in 2011. Robert Kagan said, hey, 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 man, it's their country. Let's see what happens. And then even when the Muslim Brotherhood got elected, he said, hey, listen, it's not like they're canceling all the future elections. Let's let's see. Now, of course, then he turned right around and supported the war in Libya because, oh, that was all about bringing democracy to the Libyans, too. So, you know, is there is it, you know, on the face of it, is it evident that he does believe in democracy a little bit more than simply naked American authority in the world with democracy as an excuse? Yeah, apparently so. But is he willing to support the next war five minutes from now with democracy as the excuse for it? Yeah, that too. So it's not like it's, it's you know, he has much more of a moral standing than Bill Crystal, who he actually had a falling out, or I don't know, a falling out, but who actually he disagreed with about Egypt for one thing. Do you think that there's really any in, in practical terms, in terms of like what they would do, are there really any differences between neocons and the so-called liberal internationalists or liberal interventionists? Or is it just a difference of kind of rhetoric and branding on exactly how they market it, but they basically want to do the same stuff? Well, hmm. you know, I think there are differences in the sense of emphasis of where they want their policies carried out. Like, for example, the um, I think probably if there had been no neocons, I think the realists and the liberal internationalists would have agreed that the real war is for Central Asia, more along a Brzezinski line, uh, rather than invading Iraq, which was specifically more of a Likudnik and neoconservative project. And for that matter, kind of a Houston and Bush family project um, that was a, a bit outside of um, – you know, probably what would have happened without them. I think if Al Gore had been the president, he would not have invaded Iraq. Um, you know, he would have messed with them. He would have bombed them. He would have been horrible, but he wouldn't have done what Bush did in 03 with the full scale invasion from Kuwait like that and that kind of thing. Uh, so there are differences in that sense. But generally speaking, would you be able to bet one way or the other that this group would be better on this particular conflict rather than that one? Nah. I mean, you know, Max Boot and Samantha Power, Hillary Clinton, they all agree that we got to go back to Libya, man. The problem with Libya wasn't regime change. The problem with Libya was we should have invaded full scale and stayed to garrison the place forever, and then it would have been fine, which is the main reason I opposed it is because that's what I thought was the absolute guaranteed immediate result of the war would as soon as one truck bomb goes off, now we got to occupy the place, train up an army and have purple finger elections and all this crap. And it looks like that's where we're going now. In fact, uh, in a debate with Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton said, first of all, it's all Obama's fault, not mine. He's the one who's the president, not me. I don't know. <laughs> and then second, she said, but yeah, you know, what we got to do is reinvade and stay forever. We're, uh, and then she cited Germany, Italy, Britain. Korea, Japan, I don't know if she said Britain, but anyway, she, she cited all the post-World War II occupations and said we're still in those places and will be forever, so why should North Africa be any different? 
Yeah, I think it's stuff like that that really betrays the mindset where this is kind of her answering sort of off the top of her head. I don't think it was like a practice line of what to say there, but that's what she thinks the real answer is. You know, I watched the the um, well, part of most of the documentary, if you can call it that Clinton cash, which is pretty kind of sensational. I think they could have done a more journalistic job of it and really proved their case better. But. Overall, they prove, yeah, she's corrupt as can be, but they also prove that she doesn't even know that she's corrupt. This <laughs> is the system. This is how it works. You know, not necessarily that every secretary of state has their own foundation or whatever, but the kinds of conflicts of interest that go on here, she, I really don't think, has ever considered that it's wrong or that it looks bad. That whole, remember this phrase from the last Clinton years, the appearance of impropriety? Yeah. She doesn't have the ability to see through your eyes what might make her look like the lowest scumbag in the world, taking millions of dollars for dictators as they chop off people's heads for committing the crime of sorcery. Huh? And, and then she turns around and sells them billions of dollars uh, you know, with taxpayers, subsidies and loan guarantees and everything else, all the weapons that they use to then turn around and slaughter Yemenis for the last 16 months, for example, there uh, with her dealings with the Saudis, this kind of thing to her and CJ. She's right. This is the American system. This is the way the game is played. And to people like her, she would probably be surprised to think that people really think that that's corruption. Or that that's doing something wrong. You know, if she's the Secretary of State and she needs a job done, of course she's going to go to the business cronies that she knows to accomplish the things that she thinks needs done. What else are you going to do? That's just how it, you know. And to somebody like that, hey, if you don't like it, run for office or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, try and change the the mafia from within. Crime. I mean, what are you even talking about? What's (laughs) criminal about any of it? It's just policy. Yeah. Do you think there's any hope that the American empire might um, – that there might at some point be popular pressure if the, if the tax cattle of sort of the masses will realize that the empire is not paying them a dividend and that it's in fact causing them to lose more of their wealth and their, their liberties and so on? Or do you think that the, the American empire is just going to follow the exact same script of it will end when – it's just too damn broke because I mean, I, I look at, for example, the the public opposition to overt intervention in Syria. And on the one hand, I look at that and go, well, the American people actually had some good instincts there and actually had a little bit of an effect on on stopping that at least being like full full bore. On the other hand, I look at it and go, yeah, but even though the, the power elite didn't didn't have like a full fledged ground invasion of Syria, that whole public backlash against intervention in Syria uh, didn't stop them from continuing to run, you know, kind of more more covert, more low key kinds of operations in Syria. Yeah, I mean, it's a real problem. I think, you know, if I got to if I got to answer what I think is more likely. Yeah, I think it's going to go like this until the dollar breaks, whenever that is. It might not even be in our lifetimes. I mean, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know why people still accept American currency, honestly. You know, at the same time, you got to do what you got to do anyway. And I think, you know, the chances, well, like, you know, the Syria thing is one example where, yeah, the American people's instincts was part of it. But, you know, part of it was it was their experience. Part of it was the fact that it was Obama that wanted to do it 
And there were right-wing talk radio people saying that this is going to help al-Qaeda. They actually got that right for a change. This is going to help our enemies if we get rid of Assad. Assad is bad, but head chopper, suicide bomber dudes are worse. And, um, you know, and, and in fact, by the way, the military guys, the, joint, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, he really didn't want to do it, uh, Dempsey. And he told the press, geez, I don't know why we got to do this right now, which was a, a real, you know, pull the rug out from under Obama on it thing. And then we found out in the most recent Jeffrey Goldberg interview of Barack Obama in The Atlantic that James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, had come to him. And this is a reference to what George Tenet had told George W. Bush about Iraqi WMD. He said this is not a slam dunk that Assad had done the sarin attack that supposedly had crossed the red line. And with that, that was the permanent government telling Obama that we're not with you on this. Not really. And so that, I think, is what really stopped it even more than the um, than the people's pressure there. But, you know, as you're kind of illustrating, that was an argument for starting a war in a way that sounded almost like Iraq War II level starting a war to the American people that really caused a kind of reaction. But as you said, Obama's been using the CIA to back terrorists against Assad there. Um, even after he's betrayed them and started bombing them, he still backs them <laughs> five years into this thing in Syria. And and the American people don't seem to care too much about that. Uh, the Democrats, the, the liberals and progressives just nominated Hillary Clinton, who promises to invade Syria at her first opportunity. Um, and in fact, you know, Trump, too, really has said he wants to create a safe zone there. He has said he doesn't want to fight Assad, only ISIS. But then he turns around and says he wants to create a safe zone, which means an invasion. So, you know, yeah, ultimately, I think as long as they keep it with drones and special forces, the American and CIA spies back in terrorists on the ground and stuff like that, they can keep doing this for quite a long time. The American people can't seem to mind, you know. I mean, maybe... Maybe if it's Trump carrying out all the same policies, we'll get a little bit of the anti-war left back. But even then, they're going to be so embarrassed over their silence for the last eight years that they're not going to be able to come back credibly, except very slowly. You know what I mean? Unless he just nukes North Vietnam or something, <laughs> I mean, you know, invades Cambodia. I don't know what's going to get them to come out in the streets because they've been so deliberately negligent in opposing Obama's foreign policy all these years. So... You know, it doesn't look good, honestly. And and I, I guess if there's if there's a silver lining on it, it's that the American people do not seem to be impressed at all by the demonization of Vladimir Putin and Russia. And, um, you know, Mitt Romney tried that back in 2012 and everyone's like, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> uh, they're trying that against Donald Trump now. And it's completely ridiculous, actually. And I think it makes them look completely ridiculous when you have Hillary Clinton who, yeah, she's a militarist and everything, but she's also the one who wrote, takes a government to raise your child and all this stuff and has a reputation of being, you know, wanting to nationalize health care and all this kind of pinko stuff. And then she and her party, her movement, they are going to red bait Donald Trump, a billionaire businessman Republican. It just doesn't make any sense on the face of it. it just doesn't, he doesn't even really have to defend them, himself from it. They just sound silly even saying it, that the Donald Trump, that his support, that his candidacy 
is somehow the project of the Russians. His supporters know that that's not true. They don't support him because of anything about Russia whatsoever. And they don't believe a bunch of lies put out by a bunch of Democrats about, oh, yeah, we swear that it must have been Putin who hacked the DNC and is trying to rig the election for Trump and whatever. It just sounds ridiculous. It's like a Saturday Night Live skit. And they take themselves so seriously that they end up painting themselves into such a corner that they actually sound even just beyond self-parody. I mean, what are they talking about? You know, they really trying to make us think that the Republican candidacy is a Kremlin plot. What is this? <laughs> the early 50s and we're all completely stupid. <laughs> yeah, I think what's happened is that actually a while ago, the American empire has jumped the shark. Maybe it was invading Afghanistan or, or somewhere along there. I think that's when all, all empires jump the shark is with Afghanistan. But now we're like in this bizarro, we jumped the shark and we kept the damn show going for like a half dozen more seasons. And now it's like, we're in a weird, bizarro alternate dimension uh, series where like weird things happen every episode and the laws of physics don't apply. And, you know, we're kind of in uncharted waters as far as that goes. Yeah, I'm really glad you kind of bring that up because, you know, just how bizarro all this is. I always think of uh, Doc in Back to the Future 2 where he draws on the paper. It's a skew to attention to this parallel <laughs> reality where everything's horrible and Donald Trump is the president and all this stuff. And yeah. It really is like that. But the point being, what's the point? The point is that it didn't have to be this way. And, hey, one further, it doesn't have to be this way. We really could call all this off. This really isn't keeping us safe. And all the fear-mongering and scaremongering that this is the way it has to be. And after all, like they teach us in elementary and junior high school, it's a democracy. And so everything that happened must have been what was supposed to happen because it was the will of the majority that that was what they wanted. And so how can you really question it? Just forget all of that. We can call all this off. We could just we could try our very best to pretend the first 16 years of the 21st century never happened and try to get off on the right foot. Now, we don't have to have a clash of civilizations with Islam. We don't have to have a world empire. We don't have to have a police state. We don't have to have all this division and all of this hatred over everything. All we fight over is power. You know, as long as we're free and we respect each other's rights, there's nothing to do but get along and help each other get rich and have a good time. And, uh, and, and, and certainly we can work out all of the problems that exist on the planet now between nation states with simple diplomacy and, and any problems that we have with terrorism right now can be resolved by stopping the military intervention and you know simply using national police forces in the west to you know stay on the the mopping up mission of of you know keeping veterans of the syrian jihad from coming back to the u.s to commit more attacks or that kind of thing but otherwise we can as uh, phil giraldi the former cia counterterrorism expert has put it for 10 years straight now and still says it no matter how bad it gets he still says the same thing ramp this whole thing down we don't have to do this we can stop doing this and even though geez even now even with isis yes yeah, especially now especially with isis what do you want to do make it worse just break free we you know the consensus is wrong it's been wrong we need a new one yeah that that would be great if all that happened um and you know i, I certainly 
have have uh, hope that it does. On the other hand, man, when I look around at current events and headlines and whatever, I can't help but be a bit pessimistic. Looking at the looking at the electoral freak show going on right now and all that fun stuff, but I t- I'm well, totally with you, you know, on like that. Would said, be desirable. Just go back to, just go back to 2013 and the 90 percent super duper plus majority of the American people who did not want to start a new war against Syria at that time. You know, at least in, in the way that they understood it. As you said, we were already in the middle of a war there anyway, but, uh, you know, a proxy one, a covert one. You know, there's reason to have hope. And as I know, you know, from hosting the show, too, you get through to individuals one at a time or a few at a time, and you never know what kind of differences they're going to make. So got to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. Very, very true. And and I know that's why both of us kind of do what we do. That's the name of the game, man. Well, anyway, Scott, um, I know you got to run. So I just want to say it's been cool talking to you. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me, CJ. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, There are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to... Help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode. Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, the final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, Go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.